to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome everyone to episode 34. We have two more amazing guests with us today. Joining us from Region Atlantic, headquartered in Morristown, New Jersey, and with a satellite office in New York City, is COO Jen Papadopoulos. And from Crestone Capital, headquartered in Boulder, Colorado, they also have offices in Denver, Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, and a brand new office in Salt Lake City, we have COO Matt Wiles. Jen and Matt, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Perfect. Well, Jen, I'm going to go to you first. Can you tell us a little Region Atlantic? Sure, Matt. Region Atlantic was founded in the early 80s and is really the result of two smaller firms coming together in around 1998. And we've grown to almost $6 billion in assets under management. We have over 70 employees. Most of our growth has been organic. We completed our first merger in August of uh, 2019. Thanks for your help with that, Matt. In the past, the majority of our new clients have come from referrals from clients and COIs. The past few years, we added a custodial referral network, and that has shown some great success recently. And we're also exploring ways to expand our social media and digital presence. We really have to keep our momentum of growth going in order to help retain and keep our employees because they're the, the driver of our growth. Yep. Growth for growth's sake is never great, but yes, you guys are doing it in a structured way. And so I applied, I've been watching it closely, of course. Uh, We've done a few projects together and the growth to 6 billion now has just been amazing. So Matt, why don't you give us some background on Crestone? Sure. We were founded uh, in 2001 by our CEO and Chief Investment Officer, Eric Kramer. Yeah, Matt, as you mentioned, we're headquartered in Boulder, uh, have offices in Denver, and have satellite offices in Austin, LA, and Salt Lake. Currently manage approximately $3.5 billion in assets. We have 50 employees. You know, our ideal client, we've done a lot of work on this, which we call our quick and strategic focus, is uh, you know, entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs in the tech, you know, healthcare, and consumer-focused businesses, you know, core clients. Clients tend to have investment portfolios ranging from 20 million to 250 million. They tend to be folks that are wanting and willing to delegate the management of their investment portfolio affairs. We also have a vertical uh, service where we deal with founders that haven't yet exited their businesses. So we have a pre-liquidity service offering where we're helping clients, you know, deal with what we call, you know, sort of pre-transaction planning, any trust in the state, tax type solutions that they might need. And historically, our growth has been 100% organic. So we get referrals from our incredible clients and professional network and you know, haven't been in the M&A game or anything like that. So all organic up until this point. So you talked about some of the ancillary services that you're you're providing. And I've, I've never actually asked this to our guests before, but with the wealth management space, it's getting more and more competitive, as we all know. And with virtual meetings becoming so prevalent during the pandemic, location now has become kind of this nebulous concept. And we're not all, or we are all competing for clients across the country. We're not really able to rely on just that proximity to the client as our big differentiator. So Matt, I'll go to you first. You rattle off a few of them. But what does Crestone do beyond traditional asset allocation investment management for your clients? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we have in-house estate and tax planning resources where we'll work with our client families, you know, to help provide guidance on what folks in their positions are doing or have done in the past from a planning perspective. We help with philanthropic and next-gen planning. From an investment portfolio standpoint, we obviously 
do you know traditional asset allocation investment management i think the depth to which that we approach it i believe is a true differentiator you know it's every client has their own sort of investment policy statement it's customized we have an entire team dedicated to uh, you know finding the best investment managers in the world our client portfolios tend to be more biased to quote unquote alternative asset classes so private equity venture private equity, real estate, hedge funds, et cetera. So the access that our team has been able to get over the last 20 years is, is definitely a differentiator for us. And then, you know, I think we've just given our wicked strategic focus of, of entrepreneurs, you know, we, uh, something that's probably less quantifiable is just the experience we have in watching the evolution of a founder, you know, bootstrap a business, grow it to something significant and then exit it. And that transition from running a business on a day-to-day basis, you know, having control of the P&L and then generational capital, a life-changing capital and then trying to figure out what to do with it is, is a path that, that not a lot uh, have experienced. And we, we've seen the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. So I think that that type of stuff resonates with prospective clients, just the fact that we've seen people that have gone through an experience similar to what they've gone through. And again, like I said, it's tough to quantify that other than we can help advise on all the things that are going to come up in that transition. That's great. And Jen, what services do you think differentiate Region Atlantic? Our goal is really to give back our clients their free time so that they don't have to worry about taking time to think about their portfolio, how to pay for their children's college educations, or their own retirement. We really try to put together a plan for them that allows them to get back to the things that they want to do, whether it's traveling, volunteering, spending time with their family, whatever makes them happy. Most clients come to us because they're facing some kind of problem. Chris Cordero, our uh, CIO, likes to say they have a spear in their chest. And our goal is to set their mind at ease. So whatever problem that is, you know, can they retire? They have aging parents. They need to send their children to college. They have a child with special needs. Whatever that problem is, our goal is to give them strategies so that they can meet that challenge and then go back to what they love to do. That's really the value that we bring to our clients. Yeah. I mean, and you both touched on it. I think that's exactly right. And I think our industry is doing a much better job of explaining that in the quote, olden days, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 90s. It was here's your performance versus the benchmark. And that was it. And that's my value. I don't know if we're fully there, but I think we're all doing a good job of saying, and United Capital was very good at this too. You know, it's not about how much money you have. It's how you're using your money to do the things that you love and get the most fulfillment out of that. So I think you both touched on it. Great. That's fantastic. So now for my favorite question of the podcast, Jen, uh, I'm going to go to you first. According to your LinkedIn profile, you have been at Region Atlantic your entire career. I'm sure you've held a number of positions during that time on your way to the COO role, but can you walk us through your career progression? Well, I started at what would eventually become Region Atlantic in high school. You know, I was doing general office work. You know, we made copies and we filed paper way back then. And I decided I liked the industry. I liked the firm. So I came back after college and I started doing things like opening up new client accounts, doing account transfers for clients, money movements, things like that. Then I got to do a little bit of the financial planning work. And then over time, as things came up, I'd be like, you know what? I can do that. Whether it was taking care of the daily download into Access, running all the quarterly reports, getting billing done for the clients. Then it became, hey, we're having a new employee. Can we get this computer set up? Sure, I can do that. Then it became, you know, hey, we have to do this annual ADV filing. Can you do that, Jen? Sure, I can do that. Mm-hmm. It was slow at first. And then all of a sudden it was like, 
the uh, owners realized, hey, we don't have to do all this stuff anymore. Jen can do it. So it just really grew after that into, you know, everything from legal to financial to the back office operations, to HR, anything that wasn't really touching the investments, you know, making investment decisions and, and working with clients. I just picked up over time and it all fell in, into my bucket of things that I do. And I'm really much happier because I don't think I would have made a very good advisor. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why it is my, my favorite question. And it all comes down to just raising your hand. I, I was the one that raised my hand for that. And then I raised my hand for this. And then I raised my hand for that. And that's how everybody through that operations track, not the advisor track. That's pretty much how everybody progresses their career. So, you know, Matt, you. Matt, yeah. Matt, you've done, this is your 34th episode of yep. this. Have you ever had someone on that had been at the firm since high school? I don't think so. <laughs> That's a very <laughs> good point. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> that really is. That's amazing. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And so Matt, I have, I've also LinkedIn stalked you. So you, you've held a few positions before joining Prestone almost 14 years ago. And I know you've had a few different roles at the firm on your way to being named COO two years ago. So tell us a little bit about your career path. Yeah, I had the good fortune of joining Crestone, yeah, in 2007, and joined as an advisor and spent the majority of my career here doing that. So I you know, sort of grew up on that side, uh, started out as an associate and just started to work with clients more and more and, and eventually became a primary advisor on on a handful of, of client accounts, and then also took over some of the day-to-day -day management responsibilities of the advisory team. Two years ago, I was approached by uh, Eric Kramer with the opportunity to become the COO, a to-be-defined role, I guess. You know, we sort of knew at the time what the broad job responsibilities would be, but there was no specific job description. And I took the opportunity with the one caveat being that, that I wanted to maintain client relationships. I felt like it was really important in this role to understand what the client was experiencing and, and you know, maintain a pulse on their feedback. So that was something that I had asked to maintain. So yeah, two years in, you know, it's been an amazing learning experience, been able to build a, an incredible team on the, the middle and back office side. And quite frankly, it's made me a, a much better advisor having the COO role just because dealing with the types of clients we do, business people, entrepreneurs that are running a business, I now have insight and can be <laughs> much more empathetic into the day-to-day -day decisions that they have to make, you know, to run a business. So yeah, it's been a wild ride, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it in for anything. I love it. That's, that's sort of unique uh, perspective. Usually it's either or advisor or operations, advisor or operations. And you make a good point. It makes you a better advisor to be knee deep in the operation and understand all of that. It's an interesting insight. Yeah. I think I wouldn't have been able to say that two years ago, but just that empathy part of when you're talking to a client, sometimes it's just when you want to talk about their investment portfolio or something, it's, it turns out they want to have a conversation about something going on with their business or whatever it might be. So I, I feel like I do have more, uh, can be more helpful on that front. And that's what this role has, has helped me learn. Very cool. So I've talked a lot on the podcast about how, in, in my opinion, 75% of an RIA COO's job is, is really tied up in HR-related activities. And what's interesting for both of you, both of your firms actually have a dedicated HR professional separate from the two of you. So Jen, I know you just recently hired a head of HR. So talk to us about what led to that decision. At the end of the day, the employees are our most important asset. And as we got bigger and we got more employees and we needed to hire more employees, it really is a full-time job. 
And if you don't bring a full-time person in there, you're, something's going to fall through the cracks, whether it's you're going to lose an employee because you're not paying attention to what's going on in compensation, what's going on in benefits, or just listening to them, to their concerns, their needs. So over time, myself and other folks on the management team, we just couldn't do a good enough job to make sure that our employees were happy, that they were getting what they needed from us, from everything, from questions on their benefits to, you know, we have folks always needing questions on things like maternity leave, paternity leave. It really is a full-time job. And if you don't admit that and you ignore that fact, then you are going to have a hard time, not just keeping the employees that you have, but finding employees because recruiting is a full-time job sometimes as well. Especially now, it's been very hard to find good employees with the COVID and the environment that we're in right now. So it really was important to us to make sure that we filled this role sooner rather than later. Yep. And I'll, I'll remind everybody, you're at 70 employees and Matt, you're about to talk about it, but you're at 50. That has something to do with too, just the sheer number of employees you guys are juggling. But yeah, I love everything you said there. So Matt, talk to us about the head of HR role at your firm and how you as the COO kind of interact with that person on a day-to-day basis. Yes, we have an amazing head of people and culture, Rhonda Vetrano, who has been a longstanding resource for our firm. She moved into a, a full-time role with us at the coincident with me moving into the COO role. So for the past two years, we've been a part of our executive team together. And she's, I mean, integral in the management of our firm. And we have a very specific stated goal around attracting, retaining, and developing talent. And she's takes the lead on that every day. And um, I echo everything that Jen said in terms of I, you know, it is a full-time job, not only from chatting with our existing employees on just anything that they need to talk about, but also, you know, and it's, it's so competitive to hire talent right now. So, you know, having Rhonda solely focused on that, yeah, certainly makes my day-to-day easier. I mean, we we work extremely closely together, speak multiple times a day, and I certainly couldn't be as effective in my day-to-day job if I had to take on that responsibility. I just wouldn't be able to do it. So she's amazing. And I'm really, really thankful we have her on board. Perfect. I think our listeners know that one of the driving motivations for me to start this podcast was to combat the belief that many RIA owners have, which is that the COO is really nothing more than a tech nerd who manages the firm's tech stack. And I wanted this podcast to highlight all of the many areas of the business beyond just technology that the COOs are handling on a daily basis. And so we just talked about HR. So this next question actually hits on the intersection of people and technology. I talk with many RIAs and COOs in particular who say that the technology choices are fairly easy for their firms, but the real challenge is getting the people at the firm to adopt and interact with the technology. So Matt, can you talk to us about how you handle this balancing act of both people and technology? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm sort of laughing because I'm the least technologically savvy person here. So I, I you know, I think um, we have a team of, of five folks that, you know, they're responsible for the management and implementation of our, our tech stack. And, you know, I think it's interesting people would say that the technology choices are easy and the challenge is the people and, and how they interact with it. I would say it's easy to identify where technology might be able to help you, right? For me and what I've you know learned over the past couple of years is then going to find the tools and then deciding whether or not you insource them or outsource them is really challenging. You go out and find tools that, you know, may meet the mark for 75% of what you need to do 
do, but that extra 25% is so important that you can't engage that tool. So I think that we really try to focus on, on finding solutions. And that could be just a crestone problem where we're just make things too complicated. But, uh, you know, I think uh, we, we found it challenging to find the right tools. So, I mean, this team of folks, what we really engage to do is, you know, to the extent that we make the final decision to either insource or outsource or whatever it might be, I've found that, that it's more likely to be adopted. You know, when you talk, start talking about the people, it's more likely to be adopted if you sort of engage the end user in determining how, what tools or what solutions we prioritize, and then, you know, have them involved, the end user involved in the development and the onboarding of those tools. So, you know, for the, for the larger projects that we, that we initiate here, we create a team, you know, that includes a champion from the end user perspective that, that works with our technology team to deliver the tools to the firm. Found that sort of doing it the other way, me and the technology team, you know, just decides to implement something and then sort of presents it to the firm. The, the likelihood of it being adopted without a significant amount of pain is, is higher. And, you know, having said that, we've certainly, you know, over the past 20 months with the, with the COVID remote environment, there's certain things that we just have had to do that have sort of been quote unquote forced upon some of our employees, you know, which, which they've been great in terms of, you know, adapting to that. But I think overall, I think trying to involve the people in the development identification and the prioritization of what solutions we deliver really helps to make it easier for the transition. I mean, you raise a good point. I've said this many times. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast itself, but it's sort of ironic because the RI industry is taking off and is so successful every day. There's another tech vendor that wants to service the RI. So it, it is a little overwhelming to try to choose. I, I always go back to my Luminous Capital days, 2007, 2008, when I built an RIA, you know, was building the, the tech stack. It was pretty easy in 2007 or 2008. There was one reporting system at the time and there was like two DRMs to choose from. It's very overwhelming now because there are so many choices. So you raise a very, a very good point there. That's yeah, true. I mean, you know, Michael Kitz has put together this advisor tech solutions map, which is amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. And, you know, I, I, I see it every month and you go on there and you're like, man, there's so many logos and, and you know, we've looked at a bunch of them, but uh, yeah, it is just incredible the, the amount of technology that's coming into our space. Every month the size of the PDF when you open it is <laughs> larger and the font is smaller. <laughs> it's true. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So Jen, what have you learned over the years with respect to this balancing act of people and technology? What I've learned is that I've had tons of folks come to me and say, hey, Jen, my buddy over at XYZRIA uses the software. Can we get it? So we get it uh-huh. and nobody uses it because the right, the right questions weren't asked. It's like, what are they using it for? And is this going to solve a problem that we have here? So it's really not starting with any any assumptions of any software that you're going to use, but asking what problem are you trying to solve? What is the actual need that we have here? And once you get folks, you know, to stop talking about, hey, let's use this, hey, let's use that, and just focus on the need, sometimes you find out that the software that, you know, everybody wants to use isn't really going to solve our problem. So it's really taking a step back and not talking about software, but talking about the problem and how are we going to solve it. And once we do that, I think we've done a better job at identifying the software that we need to solve that problem and then getting people to use it because it just isn't there and not solving the problem. So I think that's really been the the biggest challenge is to get people to stop telling me what software we need and to tell me what problem are they having? So I think if you just flip the questions around, I found it's been much more successful. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I've talked about that at length too. The, my buddy uses this and loves it. Well, let's talk about what that firm looks like and who their ideal client is. And like you said, is it solving 
the problems for them that we have. That's a huge mistake people make with picking their tech stack. Well, my buddy uses this. I think it'll be great for us. Well, they're all in SMAs and our firm is all alternative investments or, you know, whatever it may be. <laughs> Dan, you've got 70 employees. You know, my buddy uses this. He has four employees and it works great for them. Well, it might not work for 70 employees. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So uh, this is another one I've talked about before. So the RI industry, it's such a sales-driven industry. I feel that operations folks have a hard time standing out as there's this general belief that if you aren't bringing in the clients, you aren't as important to our firm's success. And so how do you both empower your operations teams? You both have talked about your teams. So how are you empowering the teams to ensure that they're getting the visibility and the credit that they deserve for all of the great things that they're bringing to the organization? Jen, I'll go, I'll go to you first on this one. We have a monthly firm-wide meeting. And at the end of that meeting, we give out what we call the PAMI Award. Pam was our receptionist for many years and she unexpectedly passed away, but she was the epitome of client service of just making everybody that came into the office feel warm and welcome. So we named this award after her and anyone from the firm can be nominated. And most of the winners are the back office folks to win. It's just going above and beyond on client service. So the winner of the last month's award was our alternative investment specialist because he processed all of the paperwork for many, many clients going into a private offering, and he just made everybody's life easier. Our client relationship specialists are, are usually the winners. They're the folks on the front lines with the clients doing the account openings, the account transfers, money movement, and another regular winner is our manager of client operations. So these are all back office folks. It's not the advisors. It's not the financial planning analysts who are sitting in on client meetings and really have a lot of client interaction. It's the folks who really make things work. It's the folks that make them look good. So that's, I don't know if it's empowering them, but it's definitely giving them the recognition that they really deserve. I love it. The PAMI award. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So Matt, how do you highlight your team in the, in the eyes of the owners and the advisors of Prestone? Yeah, we, we do something similar just in terms of we have biweekly all hands meetings and we highlight team wins you know, across the organization. And then on a quarterly basis, we hand out awards for those that embody our, our core values. So it's a great way for people's peers to call out folks for the stuff that they've done. I mean, I think one of the things that's been a big objective of mine coming from the, the client side where, yeah, you, you tend to get a lot of the, the the credit for you know bringing on new relationships, et cetera, was trying to draw a clear line for folks on the more back office side into how they impact the client experience. And I think we've done a pretty good job of, of identifying and giving people certain responsibilities for roles that do impact the client experience. So trying to draw that line closer has been really important. And then, you know, from an empowerment standpoint, what really opened my eyes is, you know, we have a ton of, of external relationship, even more so on the back office side that, that a lot of our folks are responsible for. And what I tried to encourage folks to to do is that type of relationship, how we work with those folks, how we challenge them to, you know, deliver better solutions to us, you know, helps the firm broadly. So trying to, to encourage folks to, you know, have a voice in that regard and own that relationship was very important to me. Fantastic. I love it. So let's end the discussion today with a very open-ended question. Very open-ended. So Matt, what is the biggest challenge you're facing today? Yeah, I think it's familiar to most folks. We spend most of our time talking about just at a firm level is how do we maintain our culture, both with our employees and with our clients. You know, pre-pandemic, we would host events, you know, almost on a monthly basis in person with clients. And, you know, we haven't 
been able to do that as much. So our team's done a great job of, of shifting to more virtual type engagements with clients. In some respect, we've been able to bring even more sort of events and connections that we wouldn't have been able to when we were trying to do it in person. But from the internal team side, culture has always been such a big thing for us that, you know, and we've hired, I guess we've hired something on the order of 20 folks during the pandemic. So really trying to make sure that we keep that cohesive culture together. And, and as we're expanding to other locations, that's the biggest challenge for us right now. We definitely have have times when we'll meet as an executive team and want to go get everyone together person for, for a great event or something. And then COVID will, will smack us in the face and render that gathering probably not worthwhile. So so that's the biggest challenge we have right now. I think. Yeah. I mean, if you went from 30 to 50 in, forget COVID, just if you went from 30 to 50 employees in 18 months, that I would think culture is going to be your top priority. <laughs> yeah. There's been some, there's been some, you know, some turnover. I mean, so it's probably going from, you know, call it, you know, 38 to 50 or something like yeah. that. But, uh, but, but certainly just, you know, just maintaining, you know, that, that culture that we did have prior. And, you know, I think we're realistic in that. So that's changed, right? So just in terms of the ability to, to do it the way that we had done it before just doesn't exist today. So we've got to be creative in that regard. Yep, absolutely. So Jen, what is your top priority right now? It's the same. When are we going to return to work? Because there's just a concern of losing the culture. We have hired a dozen or so employees over the past, you know, 18 months. They've never worked with everybody in the office. You know, what is their experience going to be like? How are they going to really know what it's like to work at Region Atlantic? How do we balance people wanting to work from home permanently? Is that okay? Is, is that not okay? Is that going to hurt our culture? So it's everything that goes into preserving our culture, but giving people some flexibility in working from home because we've proven that it works, but we don't know for how long. We don't know at what point our culture will break down. And that's a real concern for us. Yep. I think a lot of people are thinking those same thoughts. So those were great ones to point out for both of you. Thank you. Well, this has been a, a fantastic discussion. I want to thank both Jen and Matt for sharing your insights and your experience with us. Thanks guys. Thank, thank you, you Matt. Matt. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> well, that is a wrap on episode 34. I haven't given a plug for the podcast in a while. So let me just be very salesy and say, if you, if you enjoy these discussions with RIA operations professionals, please subscribe and please share this podcast with your individual networks. We'd love to spread the word even further as we're, we're now approaching our third year anniversary coming up in a couple of months, which is amazing. We've been doing it this long. So thanks everyone for joining and we will talk to you all soon.